So this is, this is week four, my friends. And we get to the meat of this letter. Chapters three and four are very heavy. It takes time to unpack what Paul is doing here. So I hope that you have your thinking cap on because this requires brain power to understand fully. Martin Luther, the monk responsible for the Reformation back in 16th century, this Reformation shifted Western society as we know it, not just from a spiritual standpoint, it actually shifted everything that we know today, we owe it to the Reformation back in 16th century. And it happened because Martin Luther, a monk who began to study the Bible, began to see a discrepancy between what the scriptures are teaching and what the church was teaching. So much so it troubled him that he wanted to do something about it. His, his heart was never actually to start this reformation. His heart was to actually have a conversation about it and say, God, guys, maybe we're missing what the Bible actually teaches about grace and about, about faith. And, and he came across Romans 1.17, which was also written by Paul, who says, the righteous shall live by faith. And in that time period, the Catholic Church had this theology of you earn your salvation by doing works and by, and by, and by buying indulgences to get your families out of purgatory into heaven. Basically, they, were, they took the gospel and they distorted it and made it into a gospel that is works-oriented versus grace-oriented. And he brought so much chaos, so much confusion that people begin to question their faith and begin to question their journey, begin to question, do I have enough faith? Have I done enough to appease this God? And he says, we missed the point. It was never about that. And so he says that Galatians is the declaration of independence for all Christians. That's a powerful statement. Because at first glance, if, if all you do is approach Galatians from a head knowledge standpoint, you missed it. Because here's what happens with us over time in church. Remember, Paul is speaking to people in church. He wasn't speaking to the world. What happens over time in church is that we, if, we keep, if we stop growing by grace, we are digressing into something less than. So I see already in week four that our struggle is, some of us think we already know this, but it's one thing to know something intellectually. It's another thing to know something experientially. That if we stop growing in grace, then we automatically have bought into a different perspective of grace, a grace that is driven by performance, a grace that is driven by law, a grace that is driven by my own efforts versus what Jesus has already done for me. That's why he called it the Declaration of Independence for all Christians. And the thing with independence is you take it for granted until you find yourself in a position where your independence is being threatened. So Paul, you can see the urgency behind his heart when he writes this, is that he can see, man, your all independence is being threatened by this works-oriented gospel. And I tell you, back in 2020, I took our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution differently because we find ourselves face-to-face with the reality of, of a situation where the church was in danger of being closed because of all of these pandemic restrictions that we find ourselves having to legally fight for our freedom to gather and worship Jesus freely. So in other words, 
You take what's yours for granted until it's being threatened. And we find ourselves having to legally fight to stay open because we believe that there is a separation between church and state. Or better yet, that they play well together when we understand them in the right context. And my friends, what Paul is doing here is brilliant. Paul is saying, let me help you understand how the law and the grace was meant to work together for your freedom, not for your bondage. So this is what he's doing here. In chapters one and two, he focuses on personal experience. He says, hey, I wasn't given this message by somebody, I was given it directly from Jesus himself, like he changed me with his grace, he transformed me, and he sent me out to preach this grace to the Gentiles, and then, and then I had a meeting with the Jew believers so we can get on the same page about how we go about bringing the grace and the gospel of Jesus, but then Paul says, this is not enough, I can't just live by personal experience, I need to show you how this grace is actually rooted in the word of God. So chapters three and four, if you're taking notes, chapter one and two is experiential. Chapter three and four is scriptural. Because here's the thing, you can have a personal experience, but, but does it stand in light of what God already said? This is very important because we live in a day and age where pe- people can pick and choose what they want to believe, but the Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word remains the same. In other words, Jesus' words never changes, and what Paul is doing here is brilliant. Paul is saying, listen, let me actually show you that what I'm preaching to you was always there in scriptures, is that people have missed the point that God always wanted us to serve him by grace, not by law. So it's a very heavy chapter to unpack. This is why you have to go to crew because I can't really honestly unpack all of it. If we do, we're gonna be here for a long time. So crews are so important so you can continue the conversation and I hope you have a study guide that you're taking your soul seriously because when I tell people buy a book or buy a study guide, what I'm really telling you is invest in your soul. Your soul is your responsibility if you want to grow in the grace and the will of God. So here, my friends, Paul begins now to show you, hey, it's one thing, this is, and we can all agree with this, it's one thing to be set free, it's another thing to remain free. We see this all the time, where people, you know, we can sing, I see addicts finally free, and then you see addicts finally back into bondage. Because they didn't manage their freedom. If you don't manage your freedom, you're slowly going back. And, and listen, it's one thing to just talk about addicts, but listen, we all have our thing. We all have our thing. Some of us, God will set you free from a really bad relationship and you go right into another one. Oh, see, see? So Paul is saying, no, no, we gotta fight to stay free. This is a fight. I wish it wasn't. I told God straight up this morning when I was praying this morning, I said, man, why does it always have to be such a fight? Because you live behind enemy lines. You're not in heaven yet. It's always gonna be a fight to stay free. Can you say amen? Amen. So Paul here is saying, listen, now let me lay out the foundation for why from a scriptural standpoint, what I'm preaching to you is not new. It's what Jesus and the Father laid out from the beginning. And if the Judaizers want to use scriptures to, to try to bring you back to bondage, let me use scriptures to actually keep you free from bondage. So Paul, if you're taking notes, he actually uses six different Old Testament scriptures here to make his point. 
And this is something that you can go deeper in cruise or in your study guide. I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna focus on one because I don't have time. But Paul says, hey, the Judaizers told you that you need to keep the law of Moses and that, and that you need to keep everything as Jew. So how about I do this? How about I use one of the greatest influencers, one of the greatest leaders in the entire Jewish tradition who is Abraham to make a point to you that God always had a plan for us to be saved by grace. Because they all respect Abraham. They all know that Abraham is the father of their faith. And if you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand. How many church kids do I have in the house? Stuff they make you do in church. Especially when they make you do it on stage in front of your parents. Father Abraham. <laughs> you know, I made a vow to our kids in this church. I'm like, I'm not going to put you guys to that torture, bring you up here. You know, <laughs> we need, some of us need therapy from those days, you know. But Father Abraham is the pivotal person in the faith of the Jews. Actually, all faiths lines up with Abraham. Because he's the first one in Genesis chapter 12 that God said, hey, I'm going to pull you out of where you are. I'm going to send you to this promised land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to many nations. And through you, the Messiah will come. So Paul was like, hey, even your own father of faith understood that it was never about works and self-righteousness and self-effort. It was always about God's grace and God's will says, let me prove it to you. He, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. In verse 6 and 7, he talks about Abraham, and he actually quotes it because here's the thing, my friends. When you have an experience with Jesus, it also needs to be grounded in his word. We need this more than ever. There's a lot of people having a lot of experiences, but then you're like, does that align itself with the word of God? But Paul was like, look, Genesis 15, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith, not his works. Why is this important? Because they're saying that you earn God's approval by your works. And he's saying, oh, look, even the father of your faith didn't earn God's approval by his work. He earned it by his faith. In other words, he believed God, and God counted him as righteous. In other words, this is so powerful. There's a difference, please catch this. There's a difference between believe God and believe in God. And you're like, what's the difference? The difference is this, you can say I believe in God but not really trust God. It could just be a head knowledge of God. So many people believe in God but you look at their lives, you're like, where is God? Your actions doesn't back up your belief. See, Abraham says, I believe God, and his actions reflect that he believed God, and because his actions reflect that he believed God, God says, I counted you as righteous, not because you said you believe in me, but because you're actually living like you actually believe in me. See, Abraham believed God, which implies trust. Because he trusted God, God put righteousness in his bank account. He didn't earn the righteousness, it was put on him. Just because he trusted whom God says he is. And then you look at Abraham's life, you see the evidence of this trust. Because the, another word for faith is trust. 
How do we see it? Couple of big ones, right? You know the story. Abraham, God says, hey, I'm gonna, I, I, need you, I, need, I require a sacrifice from you. And, and Abraham says to his son, hey, we're gonna go and sacrifice. His son goes, where is the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? God will provide. Trust. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my pro- the, the, the Lord will provide. And so they go to, to sacrifice. And in the moment of sacrifice, God says, stop. I've seen that you trust me. Here's the sacrifice, which is a picture of actually salvation. Because in that moment, instead of Isaac, a sacrifice is provided on their behalf. So God was saying, no, no, you don't have to sacrifice. In other words, you don't earn this thing. I make it for you. I do it for you. You don't have to do it for yourself. Fast forward, God promised a son, just like God promised a savior. Now Abraham is 100 years old, and this promise is hasn't come to pass. And the angel visits Abraham and Sarah and says, you know, it's going to come to pass, even though you guys are like, wicked old. <laughs> but catch this, this is powerful, because there's a, there's a reason why this is here. And he's saying, listen, even though you're, you're wicked old, even Sarah started laughing, was like, come on, God, come on, for real, like... I'm like 100 years old, and Abraham's like, he's an old fart, like, there's no way. And mind you, this is the era of no Viagra. I got kids in the room, so I'll keep it at that. But, but understand what's happening here, my friends. God was saying, the promise that I made to you and Sarah will come to pass, not because you can perform it, because I'm going to make it happen. So Paul was like, if the father of faith started with faith, what makes you think you can earn it? He couldn't perform this. God was making a point. I'm going to make sure you're really old so you give me all the glory when it happens. God will make sure that your back is against the wall when you realize I have nowhere else to turn. Sometimes God will let you rock bottom so you understand he's the rock at the bottom. That's why I love worshiping in in prison this week because some of these men are so knuckleheads that God has to corner you into a place that you have nowhere to go to realize I need to cry out to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. See, for you it's a setback, for God it's a setup. My friends, Abraham lived by faith, not by law. There's a difference between believing in God and believing in God. Believe God. That's why Paul says the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in the provision on their behalf. Not those who are trying to work their way to it. See, now let me get really deep here because this is where the rubber meets the road in practical sense. The heart of the gospel and the heart of the book of Galatians is this. Please write this down. Faith in God's provision, not our performance. Here's what happens. Now, please, this is, this is where it's one thing to have had knowledge, another thing to have experience. This is where we struggle. If you're living your life right now based on performance, there's three negative effects of that performance, and I guarantee you, you're feeling it right now. 
And here they are. When you live by performance instead of God's provision, you become oversensitive. You have a hard time receiving any type of criticism. Why? Because your performance becomes your identity. And when someone pokes your performance, they're poking your identity. That's why some of us are oversensitive. Any little thing someone says to us, we call everybody haters. Even though you have none. I saw this great meme. I had this guy praying and the meme said, Lord, deliver me from all your haters. And God responded, you ain't got none. You are your own hater because you're performance based. You think that's not true? Church, we're filled with people that are oversensitive. How many people have left the church because they got offended? And, and conveniently, God called them to another church. <laughs> but they couldn't handle what was confronted. And how many people will go from one thing to the next because they're oversensitive, because they've never allowed their identity-based performance to be poked? That's why it's hard to get people to join crews, because in crews, it's smaller, it's more likely you're going to be exposed. It's easy to hide behind a big church service. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But let's not talk about what's really going on. See, when you're performance-based, not only are you oversensitive, but you can become envious. Because you start to rate your life based on what you're seeing other people perform. Let me give you a practical example. This is why sometimes you could be in church, have a great church service, hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory to God, all the good stuff. And then you go home and you scroll to social media and you see someone else with an amazing post about their house or about their car or about their family and you go, my life sucks. But what you didn't realize is that it took 45 minutes for that person to post that perfect post because they're also looking for validation that you can also say, please hear me out, I need for you to validate me through my post. I got news flash for us. It's not real life. It's a projection of a life. Wouldn't it be interesting if we were to take these people and put a camera on them and follow them around? But here's the catch. It would be great if we put a camera on them, but it's a hidden camera. They never knew it was there. Because it's easy to see someone like me on the spotlight appear and, 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 and poke all the holes into my life, but if I was to follow you around, hallelujah, glory to God, praise to God. The truth is, who you really are is when no one's watching you. And envy creeps in very quickly when I am performance-based and I think you're outperforming me. So my car would never be good enough. My house would never be good enough. My, my whole family may not ever be good enough. Because look at how that family behaves. But what you didn't realize is that 10 minutes ago, they were killing each other. This is a makeup post. I always tell my kids, the real you is when no one's watching you. That's the one that you want to be true to. Third thing that performance-based life will do for you 
And this is, this is real. I don't care what you say. It makes you intimidated. Because now you're intimidated by other people that look better, smarter, or, better, or greater than you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Appreciate it every time. <laughs> Performing-based life indirectly, this is, this is where religion gets scary. Okay, please hear me on this. Indirectly, it causes more stress and anxiety. Because you're always wondering, have I done enough? Did I say the right thing? Did I dress the right part? Did I have the right thing? And, 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 and over and over again, all you're doing is adding more anxiety and stress to your soul. Because it's never gonna be good enough. So you have to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul was saying, listen guys, I'm trying to keep you free. That you don't go back into this bondage of trying to perform. Man, the more I'm studying Galatians, the more relevant I'm realizing this is. I didn't realize it when we started. Now I'm like, wow, this is what's happening in church. People are going to church this morning anxious, worried, frustrated, and they're in the presence of grace, but they live by law. Still trying to earn their way. And we do it in directly and indirectly. Like we fight over spiritual gifts, who's more spiritual, who's more woke, who's more this, all of that. You can do all of that and still be frustrated. Isn't it funny, you can win an argument and still be frustrated? <laughs> I told him. Yeah, but you got an ulcer. <laughs> Who won? You lost. Because, because we fight to be right instead of being righteous. Paul is trying to help us live free and stay free. So, of course, the question becomes then, okay, so, so if that's the case, then what's the point of the law? Like, why would God give us the law if, if all it is is about trusting in him and, and, and not my performance? So, it's a very good question. It's a valid question because if you read Galatians wrong, you might misinterpret what Paul is saying, which we'll get into in four and five. Paul was saying, listen, if you are truly free, you don't disregard the law. If you're truly free, it actually will set you up to do the things you need to do because true freedom is not doing whatever you want to do, it's doing the things you actually need to do. If, listen, if that's not true, then why is our society so addicted to stuff? Because we start with the concept of I'm free to do whatever and you end up putting yourself in a bondage because you think your freedom is to do whatever. True free people will not do whatever. They'll do what they need to do. So he says the law has a point, has a purpose. And he answers the question if we keep reading. Go down to verse 19. Paul says, look, here's the point of the law. Verse 19. Why the, he, he knows they're asking the question, so he starts with the question. I love Paul, he's so smart. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their what? Their sins. But the law, watch this, was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses who was the mediator between God and the people. Did you catch that? The law was given to reveal how jacked up we are. 
Because here's the thing, right? Again, this is a mature word. I hope you're catching this. The law was given to expose us of our shadiness and inability to live by God's standards. Like the law came to be like, hey, can I make it obvious to you that you're jacked up? Because if you understand this, there's no good news until you realize there's bad news. See, a lot of times we want to gloss over the sin and go into grace, but you won't understand amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch first like me. So, so the law makes it clear to you, you don't have what it takes no matter how hard you try. If you don't stop there, you will always make excuses for your wretchedness. Well, the reason why is because of this, is because of that. Well, listen, if I only had a better job, or if I only had a better girl, if I only had a better boy, look, and then you get the girl, and then you get the job, and then you get the thing, and you're still jacked up. Make a point, like you don't have what it takes, and that's the good news. If you can recognize the bad news, then you can, you can graduate into the good news. Because the law is trying to make a point that, listen, you're always going to be frustrated trying on your own strength. That's where religion without grace will do. Can I be honest? Some of the most frustrated, bitter people you will ever meet are religious people. They're angry at the world. They're angry at everybody, not realizing the reason why you're so angry is because you keep trying to attain something that is elusive without the grace of God. So what do we say? I need to pray harder. I need to pray more. I need to give more. If I just do more and 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 it's never enough. Because you don't have what it takes. That's what the law makes clear. The law is trying to make it clear to every human being on the face of the planet, you don't have what it takes. It reveals the bad news. You cannot save yourself no matter how hard you try. And here's the thing. The problem is, you know why he says, oh foolish Galatians, oh foolish New Life South Coast people? You know why he said that? Because he says, when you started with grace, how can you go to law? In other words, think about this. I was thinking about this the other day because I was in that prison preaching and, and, and it just, I just felt compelled to share a little bit of my story and it dawned on me, wait a minute, how did this whole thing started for me? I never had a say. It's not like one day I was like, All right, I'm ready to give my life to the Lord. If God didn't invade me, I would still be jacked up looking around trying to find him. Same with you, it wasn't your idea. But somehow we get into it and then we become churchified and now we think I did this. That's why he says you're an idiot, another word for foolish. <laughs> for thinking that now you, you own the copyright on grace. That's why when I say, man, that was exciting to be in prison with these brothers, some of y'all law driven, all you're thinking is, but they're criminals. And what are you? Paul goes on, watch, watch this, verse 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. 
if the law could give us new life, which is a great word for, a great name for a church. We could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all what? Don't shoot the messenger. All prisoners of what? Of sin. So we receive God's promises of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Only by believing in Jesus Christ. In other words, the work of Christ on the cross. Then he goes on and he gives you the greatest illustration of the law and how it, it, it works with grace to bring this invasion of grace. Watch this. I love this. Paul is such a great teacher. Before the way of faith in Christ Jesus was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that, we, that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Did you catch that? Wake him up. Did you catch the illustration? In that culture, which a lot of us grew up this way, because I did, in that culture, you would have people who would come alongside your family to kind of tutor you, to mentor you into becoming a man or a woman, and they would mentor you in, in, in school. Like I used, to, I used to get out of school and go to more school. I don't know if any of you grew up that way, but it was like, okay, you did school, now you're going to get tutoring. <laughs> and it's like the worst nightmare for kids. It's like, I just got out of school. Yeah, you need more school, you knucklehead. So, so you spend time with these people and they mentor you and they mold you and they shape you and they help you become a man or a woman and then when you reach a certain age, which back in those days, you know, 12, 13, 14, you begin to become a man or a woman. Now we're not nature, is 27, you know. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Like psychologists are saying the new adulthood is 27. I, I don't have time to get into that. But... Let me stay with the main point. The main point is this, that you have this person who kind of guides you and leads you and helps you understand right from wrong and helps you to correct your thinking and to correct your perspective and to help you hopefully get to the place of adulthood that you're like, okay, now I'm good. I can handle life on my own without you having to be around. Let me make it more practical. When I was in high school, one of my favorite people was one of my basketball coaches. Now, this is the 90s, mind you. My basketball coach invested a lot in me and a lot of us, but the way he invested is different from the way we invest now. Like, he invested with words that I can't use in church. And he invested in methods that we can't no longer use, especially in the era of, of participation trophies. They didn't believe in participation trophies. If you ain't first, you last. And, and he, would, he would drive us, man. He would push us, uh, you know, physically, emotionally. But as a 15, 16-year-old knucklehead, I needed that. 
When I look back at my life, he's one of the people I thank God for, that he was in my life at the right time to keep me from a lot of things. Because as an immature person, you need guidance more than just your parents. You need other voices that come alongside and help you and shape you and mold you. And I thank God for him. But here's the reality. I don't need him anymore. He did his job for where I was in life. But now, as a grown man who knows the grace of God, I understand all the principles. I don't need anyone to yell at me anymore. Now, this is a mature word. Because because I see it even now in church where people think you have to keep being yelled at to fall in line. And if you have to keep being yelled at to fall in line, it just exposes your immaturity. Like I've heard people say, how come you don't talk more about hell? Because here's the reality. If you understand the grace of God, we are already in hell. I need to pull you out of hell into heaven, into the purpose of God. And watch this. No, no, no. Watch this. Immature word. If you need me to keep constantly talking about hell, it means you don't understand grace. If you need me to make you feel guilty to follow God, then you're still in the law. You're not in grace. I don't need anyone to yell at me to read my Bible. I read my Bible because I want to. I don't need anybody to yell at me to worship. I worship because I love Jesus. He's the author and finisher of my life. You don't have to tell me to give. I give because he first freely gave to me. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You don't have to yell at me to serve God. I serve God because, man, it's an extension of who he is in my life. You don't have to tell me to go to church. I get to go to church. You don't have to yell at me to do the right things anymore because I'm grounded in the grace and the goodness of God. I don't need anyone to keep yelling at me. If you need to be motivated by by yelling, you are motivated by fear. And perfect love drives out fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Unhealthy fear is works and worse is when I'm trying to earn something. So when something goes wrong in our lives, automatically we assume, oh, it's because I'm not praying hard enough. That's a bad theology. What do you say to the believers in Ukraine right now who are true believers? Is it because they're not praying hard enough? That's a terrible theology. It was a garden. It's just supposed to show you right from wrong. As a mature believer, you don't discard the law. You embrace the law, but you live by grace. Let me say that again, because this is important. As a mature believer, we embrace the law, but live by grace. Because law and grace work together to bring me to salvation. Law exposes me so that I can look to a savior. This is important. There's a terrible theology out there that is just about beating people up. God is not into beating you up. Guys, if God exposes you, it's always to free you. If a doctor comes to you and says, hey, good news and bad news, you have a condition. We're gonna have to perform surgery. You don't go, okay, doc, I'll I'll work harder. I'll do better. 
like, no, you embrace the process of surgery if you want healing. That's what the gospel is. It exposes you to heal you, not to show you how bad you are. Because that would be bad news and bad news. Hey, I got, I got bad news and bad news. You have a disease, I have no clue what we're gonna do about this. But you know what, go home and try it really hard. That's how I hear the gospel being preached a lot of times. You're all sinners, you're horrible, you're terrible, you're going to hell, go try really hard to please God. If we could do it, then why did Jesus have to die? Jesus says, hey, I got bad news, y'all jacked up, but I'm the healer, I'm the surgery, I'm the surgeon, I come to heal you and restore you back to life. So my friends, Paul is trying to keep us free. And he goes on, this is how the chapter ends, in verse 26, watch this. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Paul's like, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. You're a son, you're a daughter. And you have privileges as sons and daughters. Now get this, this is important. Notice that that declaration is not universal. In other words, sometimes you hear people say, we're all God's children. He's like, no, he says, you're all God's children in Christ Jesus. If you haven't received the adoption process, then you're not a children. It's a bad theology. We're all children of God. No, we're all creatures made in the image and likeness of God, but we all need to be adopted to become children of God. Some of y'all understand adoption because you either were adopted or you adopted a, a child, and you know that the hardest thing about adopting is this new person really feel like they're part of the family. And the best parents do everything they can to acclimate and to engraft this new child into the family, but that at some point, that kid has to shift the perspective from, from, from I'm an outsider to no, I belong. That's our struggle. God adopts you through Jesus Christ, but a lot of times, you still have the works performance mindset in you, the things I need to earn in. We all have it. All of us, still, there's still part of us who still feels like, I need to prove my sonship or my daughtership. But he's saying, no, no, I, I, that's my gift to you. You belong to this family when you embrace the adoption process. And the beautiful thing about adoption after a while is that, is that once, once that kid feels good about the family, normally a family now will say, let's make it legal. You're gonna have our name. 
And they go through the process of making the child theirs. And what, is, what does the father do? The father says, listen, through the blood of Jesus, now that same blood is going to run through your veins because you are part of the family. You are part of God's family. That's why he's like, don't you understand? Don't let anyone rob you of this privilege. Sucking you right back into a performance-based, works-based, always anxious, always worried, always feeling like, have I done enough? Have I been enough? You will never be good enough. That's the good news and bad news. You are accepted by the adoption process that Jesus went through. And, and look what, again, huge Paul fan. He says, because of that, right, he says, he says put on Christ like you put on new clothes. In other words, here's the practical side of this thing. Don't let it just be a theory. I'm a child of God. Yeah, but are you living like one? How do you live like when you put on Christ? Like this, watch this, go ahead. He says you put on Christ. In other words, the first thing that Jesus wants to do with all of us is to reshape our identity in him. That's the purpose of clothes. Becomes a uniform. Clothed with Jesus. That, hey, you know what makes you who you are? Christ. Not your performance. Jesus becomes your identity now. Because when you put on Jesus, you put it on what? Righteousness. You put it on peace. You put it on hope. You put it on eternity. You put it on everything that heaven is. It's coming to you. And I gotta, can I give you a, a simple thing that we all can do every day? I'm gonna call this a spiritual discipline. When you get up in the morning and you take a shower, what are you doing? You're cleansing yourself and you're purifying yourself. When you put on clothes, I hope that you put on clothes and go, I'm putting on the armor of God today. I am a child of God. I'm about to get out of this house with the armor of the Lord in me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I'm about to have a great day because the Lord has made this day for me to rejoice and be glad in it. I am who God says I am. I'm about to put on the boots of of, of, of righteousness. I'm about to put on the gospel of peace and I have the gospel of salvation. My helmet of salvation. My mind has been renewed. I have the shield of faith. No matter what the enemy brings this way, I'm going to bring up my faith today and I'm going to fight back in Jesus' name. I have the sword of the spirit. When my feelings tell me I'm not enough, I'm going to open up the word and I'm going to see the word of God in me. Why? Because I am who God says I am. Imagine for a second you started your day like that every day. It's like, honey, what are you doing? I'm putting it on Jesus. And I need to smell good. I am what God says I am. That changes things. It's like, I'm not trying to be, I am. I put on him as my identity. Second, what does clothes do? Clothes, there's a closeness to clothes. It's the closest thing to your body is your clothes. It's the closeness to Jesus. It's a reminder that he's with you always. Because clothes are with you always. My friends, this is about practicing his presence. In other words, he goes with me and he's with me. And he is for me. Imagine daily I practice that reality. Jesus is with me. 
I got news for us. He doesn't stay here on Sunday. It is, there's no reason for him to stay here if you're not here. He's going with you. His spirit is going with you. His grace is going with you. In the good times and the bad times, you could be close to Jesus. Can I tell you something? You are as close to Jesus as you want to be. He has no favorites. We're all his kids. It's up to you to want to have harmony with him. That's how close you want to be. What else does close do? Number three, put on Christ. It's to imitate Jesus. In other words, if I put on him, then I should be like him. Then I start to, I start to imitate him in how I also go about treating others. Because freely you've been given, freely you will give. So now you don't see people in the eyes of the world, you see people through the eyes of Christ because Christ is in you. This is what Paul says in chapter two, he says, no longer I will live, but Christ in me. I imitate him, his virtues, his actions. There used to be a, a thing we used to say back in the 90s, WWJD. What would Jesus do? No one, no one has a clue. <laughs> it sounded really good, what would Jesus do? And then we get into situations, we're like, WWJD. <laughs> you know why? Because it's not with us. You can't give what you don't have. If you're not putting on him, how can you give him? We are the outcome of what we put in us, for good or bad. So we imitate Jesus because Jesus is in us. And lastly, what does clothes do? It makes you accept it. By God. Why? This is so good. Clothes, clothes covers our nakedness. Think about this, right? We have been trying to clothe ourselves since Genesis. And the best thing we can come up with was fig leaves. That was our way of trying to do it on our own strength. And you know what's funny? It's not funny, but we're still doing it. Still people see you with fig leaves talking about, I'm good. So you don't look good. What does God do? You, you see, if, if you don't pay attention, you missed it. God sacrifices an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. In other words, it's from the beginning, knuckleheads, I've been clothing you. I've been taking care of you. I've been the one sacrificing. I've been the one <laughs> paving the way for you. He says, even though I'm going to make you suffer the consequences of your sin, but I'm not letting you go naked. He says, I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. So from the beginning, you understand you never earned this and you don't deserve this. I accepted you because the sacrifice has already been made. Genesis 3.15 was already a declaration of the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, from the beginning, God was never surprised and he was never caught off guard. He always knew it's gonna take more than their performance to come back to me. It's gonna take a sacrifice on their behalf. See, my friends, this, is, this might blow your mind because he blew my mind thinking about this. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus in us. How do you see yourself? It may not be accurate if you're looking at it yourself just from a performance base. 
We beat ourselves up all the time because we're still trying to earn something. Even in church. Again, this book of Galatians has revolutionized my thoughts again. Because we're doing it. We're all doing it. Indirectly or directly. We're trying to earn our badges. We're trying to earn something. As opposed to just accepting that when he looks down, he's seeing, have you, have you accepted my son's righteousness over you? Please write this down because you might want to reflect on this. When, when we wear Jesus, when we put on Christ, we put it on his righteousness and his perfection. Wow. And worship team, you can come up as I wrap this up. Look at how he ends the chapter. He says, if you really understand that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, watch this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm thinking, God, if we only really, really, truly believe this, not just the head knowledge, but if we really live this reality, as children of God. The gospel breaks barriers. I don't know if you caught that. That's what Paul was saying. Chapter 2, he's beefing with Peter. Because Peter started in grace and then got, got sucked back into law. And he's like, what are you doing, man? It's meant to break barriers. Nah. Divide us again. And there's three barriers here. I don't know if you caught it. Go ahead. You can put all three up. My last point. Go ahead. Put them all three. There's three things that Paul talks about here. He says, man, look what the gospel does. He breaks cultural barriers, class barriers, and gender barriers. The world could have their barriers, but the people of God shouldn't. Because the gospel has leveled the playing field. This is powerful, man, in a, in a day and age where we're, we're divided by race and, and, and culture and social economic background. The gospel says, no, 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 I level it for everyone. That's why I can go to Shirley Prison on a Wednesday night and have a service and, and feel no barriers between me and them. Why? Because of the gospel. Society may divide us into categories, but God doesn't. And look at this, look at this, right, cultural Paul says there's no Jew, no Greek, because remember, the Jews thought they were the chosen ones. It's like, no, all of us are children of Abraham. So what does this look like, practically speaking, my friends? No social, there's, in other words, there's an acceptance of culture with no superiority. No culture is more superior than another. It's a, it's a struggle that our country has had for a very long time. And we see the ugly head of it. We realize how racist we are. Did you know, this blew my mind, it wasn't just 50 years ago that we were segregated. Just 50 years ago, that's a generation. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of thinking that one culture is better than the other. The gospel comes and says, that's the enemy's work. God always wanted all cultures to celebrate him. You know how the Bible ends? Go read it for yourself. The last 
chapter in the Bible says they will come from every nation, every tribe, every language, and they will come and converge to worship one God, one Savior. So in other words, we ought to celebrate each other's cultures because there's a, there's a, there's a taste of God in it because God is diverse. Like all, look around, man, this is amazing. Not a lot of places you can go that we can be this diverse. Separate, like, he breaks the class barrier, no slave or free. What does this mean? No social class should exist within the church. The poor should not feel inferior. The well-off should not feel resented either. If, if, if God has blessed you, we celebrate it. But know that, man, you are blessed to be a blessing. And no one should feel less than when they come to the house of God. That all of us on this journey, and perhaps my blessing is to be able to bless you. And then, and then when, you, when you get on your feet, you'll be able to duplicate that and bless somebody else and bless the next one. And then lastly, the gender barrier. Neither male nor female. See, this was a culture where women were considered to be second-class citizens. In a patriarch moment, the gospel was revolutionary, man. It was, it was shifting everything. It started with Jesus. Jesus had woman disciples from the beginning. Matter of fact, you know what's, what's crazy if you study the Bible? There is a, this one verse that won't make your devotionals, but it says it was the woman who was supporting the ministry. In other words, they're the ones financing the ministry. The first time he reveals himself as the Messiah, who does he do it to? To a Samaritan woman, someone who considered to be a traitor, someone who the, the, the Jews said, these people, they're, they're less than us. Jesus goes, hey, can I let you in on a secret? I'm the Messiah. Go tell everybody. <laughs> When he comes back from the dead, who is the first person that gets to see Jesus? A woman. And here we are thinking that we know better than God, and God's saying all along, you guys just don't get it. Like, without woman, you wouldn't be here. In other words, the gospel brings down barriers within the Christian community. We, we, we may not be able to change the world, but the world should come in here and see something different. That's the beauty of the, of the church. The church should always be a better option for someone in the world to say, wow, look, they do it differently. That's why I think the enemy did a great job of separating us by political class and, and religious class and all this stuff, and we missed it. One of my favorite things that came out of the, I was telling my wife this week, we were celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary. Thank you. And we were walking, we were walking to a store, and I said, you know, the thing with us Christians is that it's either all or nothing. We don't know how to discern. But I said, if you think about it, there's things in the world we should celebrate. Because if they're getting it right, that means the gospel is being get right. Because truth is truth no matter what. But I was telling, I said, look at, the, look, look at the stores. Look at this new thing that the woke movement brought that is good. All of these models now look like regular people. 
I said, you know how big that is for a woman's image to not feel like I have to fit into a certain size to feel validated? Right? That's huge. We should celebrate that as God's people because we understand your identity, your validation does not come from how you look. Now, you may want to lose weight, but you should start losing weight from a place of acceptance because if not, you lose weight to be accepted. There's a difference. So I see that and I go, you go woke. That's a good thing, we celebrate that because everybody should feel validated for who they are, not for who we think they should be. And a word to the fellas, man, if you can't appreciate the woman that gave birth to your child for what their bodies have been through, then something's wrong with you. Because I appreciate my wife now more than ever because I know the sacrifice, I know the pain, I know the struggles of what they have to go through. And if that's not enough, then man, you need to recheck your validation process and see why do you love the person that you're with. And I'm not even talking about marriage today, I just felt like that's for free. Come on, let's stand. I, I preached for too long. That's what happens when I take a week off. I got too much to say. But the gospel is beautiful, my friends. The gospel sets us free. But it's hard to stay free. You got to fight to stay free. I tell you, even the church, you got to fight this. I have to fight to be true to me when so many religious people want me to be something that I'm not. You gotta fight for it. And trust me, if you don't like yourself, other people will make sure you don't. Because majority of people don't feel good about themselves, so they want you to be miserable as well. And they'll find whatever, they'll find a religious thing, they'll find a, a social thing, they'll find anything to, to, to feel like, I, I need to fight somebody because I don't feel good about myself. But the gospel sets you free from that restoration and say, no, you can be who I called you to be. You are jacked up, but you are loved. <laughs> That's the gospel. <laughs> like, I love you with all your imperfections, all your nonsense, and, and I want to work on you until you, be, you put on Christ so you become more like him and less like yourself. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You die to the old so the new can live. Bow your heads with me, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Only you can connect the dots for us. Behind every heart in this room and online, there's a hole that only you can fill. And it doesn't matter how long we've been in church, actually, the longer we are in church, the more we overrun the risk of going back to bondage. So whether we're here for the first time or a hundred times, Holy Spirit, I pray that your grace would invade us. Invade our souls. Invade our minds. God, expose the fear in us, the unhealthy fear, the performance-driven fear. Reveal it clear to us why we're not happy, we're not joyful, because we're, we're on the hamster wheel of trying to earn something.
God, I pray today that can you please bring back your joy to your people. The joy of the Lord. That is our strength. The grace that permeates and invades every part of our lives. There's no part of us that you don't touch and restore and heal and make us more like you. I pray today we embrace you and put on Christ like we put on clothes. Let your righteousness come over us. Let your grace come over us. Let your healing come over us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, what a moment to just say, Lord, come into my life. I want your life in me. I want your joy in me. I want your peace in me. I want your blood to run through me. I want to be adopted into your family as a child of God. We hope this talk has encouraged and challenged you. If it was helpful, share with a friend. For more info, visit newlifesouthcoast.com. Until next time, have a blessed week.